The first reading is taken from Revelation 8, um, which is on page 1239 in the Church Bible. That's Revelation 8, starting at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire, mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Second reading is over the page, um, chapter 10. That's 1240, page 1240 in the Church Bibles. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea that, and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is the word of the Lord. 
Tim's going to come and preach. Oh, we're going to sing. No, you're going to preach, aren't you? That's right, yeah. I just saw doubt in Tim's eyes. Um, Tim, come up. I'm going to pray for you, and um, then we'll dive into that passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you speak by your spirit through this book here. And we pray that we be those who are found to be listening, understanding, and be doers of the word. And pray for Tim that he would speak with power, that you'd ordain him to that task. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you, John. Thank you, Olive. Well, we have, I have to say, uh, one of the the challenging passages of Scripture this evening. Um, I've been sweating a bit in my study. We've got four chapters to get through, Revelation 8 to 11. uh, And we've also got four chapters on the theme of judgment. And just a few minutes to unpack it all. Now, if you think that is tough, um, don't worry, you're not the only one. Two of the great Christian thinkers and writers of the last hundred years agree with you. John Stott said, it's generally agreed that chapters 8 to 11 of Revelation, our passage for today, are difficult to interpret. He was a kind of master of the understatement. And Karl Barth, who the Pope described as the greatest Christian thinker since Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he said, if only I knew what to do with Revelation... And we may be tempted to think, well, if that's how they think, what about me? I'll never get my head around this. And I think what's happened in the past is that so many Christians have felt like that and thought, I don't know what on earth's going on here, so I won't even try. Let's stick with, you know, the Good Samaritan and other passages that we know what it's about. But bear with me, because I think if we can get the big picture, we won't go into kind of tooth comb detail, but the big picture uh, is fantastic. Now, if you're new to St. Michael's or you're just a visitor, haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, or you'd simply like a refresher, you have been and you can't quite get your head around what's been going on, let me just give you the context, um, the story so far. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Revelation tells us that God gave his revelation, and by the way, it's revelation in the singular. It's amazing how many people think it's plural. It's one revelation that God gave to John. He gave it to John and the church to, sh- to show what must soon take place. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, God shows John an open door into heaven and says, I will show you what must take place. And we were noticing last week that the word apocalypse is, uh, literally means an unveiling, a drawing back of a curtain. And so what God is doing for John is just to show him a little glimpse of heaven. And then in chapter 5, verse 5, one of the things that John sees in heaven is the lion who has triumphed. And the next verse, chapter 5, verse 6, he sees the lamb slain, but now standing at the center of the throne. Now, both the lion and the lamb are clearly Jesus Christ himself, once crucified, but now glorified. Then last week, we looked at chapters 6 and 7, and we saw that life was very tough. Life is full of war, violence, and injustice, and for the Christian, persecution in many situations. Very tough. And if you get nothing else from these four chapters that we're looking at this evening, and indeed if you get nothing else from the whole of the book of Revelation, 
then perhaps I can suggest you learn this little seven-word summary of the book. Life is tough, but the lamb wins. How about we all say that together? Life is tough, but the lamb wins. The lamb, of course, being Jesus. Um, this, is a, this is actually a sort of victory book, and it's a great, great read. Now, last week we saw seven seals on a scroll, few weeks time we're going to be looking at seven bowls and today we're looking at seven trumpets and I think it's helpful to think of these groups of seven as looking at the same action but from a different perspective rather like the the TMO when you have a a replay in a rugby match um, a try is scored the ref goes upstairs and a one camera angle comes in from here and another camera angle comes in from here And a third camera angle comes in from over here. And I think this is what's going on. We're seeing the same events from different perspectives. Now, when I drew back my curtains this morning, um, the street was full of people going around their usual Sunday morning business. Some people were off to the park with the dog. Some people were off to Victoria Coach Station catch a bus. Some people were off to the London winter run. Typical Sunday morning in London. But Revelation draws back a curtain and reveals things you can't possibly imagine. Things too wonderful to see. Things that are largely unnoticed or unthought of by most people. And what this unveiling does as the curtain of heaven is drawn back is to reveal the unstoppable power of God and the certain victory of God. And these seven trumpet blasts that we're going to be looking at describe the period between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, what uh, the Bible often calls uh, the end times, which began when Jesus went back to heaven and conclude when Jesus returns. If you like, we've got three pictures of life between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. First picture, the warning to the world. This is chapters 8 and 9. Now, these trumpet blasts that we've been reading about are not victorious anthems. You know, that kind of... It's not that at all. These are warnings of impending judgment, rather like a police siren that says, look out. So the first trumpet, chapter 8, verse 7, the earth is struck. Then the second, verse 8, the sea. Third, rivers, verse 10. Fourth, skies. Then the fifth trumpet, what's sometimes called the first woe, there are three woes, 5, 6, 7. That's people. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 12 as horrible creatures like locusts attack people. And then the sixth trumpet is death, chapter 9, verse 18, as a third of mankind was killed. And, of course, if you've read any of uh, the commentators, you'll know that uh, many of them have an absolute field day loving to interpret some of these very graphic images very specifically. For example... In chapter 8, verse 7, they see that a third of the earth is burned up, and that, of course, is a nuclear fireball for some commentators. And then verse 12, the sun, moon, and the stars are struck, and that, of course, is a nuclear winter. Um, 
But I don't think that's the way to interpret Revelation. It's a letter for the whole church throughout history. It's not for a particular year. Usually when people do this, it's like something that's either just happened or something that's about to happen. Uh, No, it's for all Christians throughout history. So I think it's just simply referring to natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, floods. And whenever those kind of things happen, they are a reminder that we live in a fallen world and the whole world suffers. And likewise, all war, violence, terrorism and persecution are a reminder that we live in a fallen world and the whole world suffers. And did you notice each time only a third of the earth suffers? So this is not a reference to the final judgment, but if you like, a kind of warning. Now, just when we think that the most important thing in the world is something like my appraisal or my children's education or my parents' health, or my boyfriend or girlfriend, or my career move, or my pension, or whatever it is. Just when we're thinking that sort of thing is the most important thing, some sort of disaster happens, either in the world or perhaps in our own lives. And those act as reminders to us that that life is short, that we are powerless, and that the things we often think are really important are comparatively trivial in the really grand scheme of things, certainly in the light of eternity. And God permits these interim judgments as a warning, as a clarion call, as a trumpet blast, as it puts it here, to alert us to the impending final judgment. But I think the shocking thing about this whole chapter 9 is the result of the six trumpet blasts. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The whole purpose of suffering is to bring us to repentance. But, verse 20, still they did not repent. Every disaster or tragedy should say to us, it could be me next. Every disaster or tragedy reminds me of my mortality. Every disaster or tragedy should lead me to get right with God and lead me in humility to repentance. Now, some people would say that these kind of uh, disasters are simply signs that God doesn't care. And uh, we're going to look at this, or John is, um, we all are, (laughs) at big questions on Wednesday. You know, is there really a loving God in the face of all the suffering and evil in the world? Many would say, well, look at the world, God clearly doesn't care. The Bible, and Revelation in particular, says absolutely not, quite the contrary. These things that happen, these bad things that happen, 
are actually acts of mercy. They are warning blasts from God's trumpet to bring us to repentance, to bring us back to God. You probably know the famous C.S. Lewis quote about suffering, where he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone, or we might say trumpet, to rouse a deaf world. We watch our television screens and we see a catalogue of disasters, food, uh, sorry, flood, famine, terrorist atrocities, environmental disaster. And we ask ourselves, why does God allow that sort of thing? And Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, gives us the biggest shock. Still, they did not repent. God's warnings go unheeded. Trumpet blasts go unheard. God allows it to wake us up to impending judgment. When I was 17, I was sailing with some friends. We'd been over in Brittany and we were sailing back across the channel. It had been a very carefree, fun time, but just a few miles short of the, the English coast, uh, a real pea super of a fog closed in, and we couldn't see where we were going. We had to sail on instruments, and uh, it was actually quite frightening. It was much worse than being in a storm. At least in a storm, you can see where you're going. And then suddenly there was this enormous boom from the foghorn of the Needles Lighthouse on the Isle of Wight. It was a huge sound, and it was quite alarming, in fact, partly because we weren't that far away. But boy, were we glad for that foghorn to stop us getting dashed on the rocks. Suffering is God's megaphone, his foghorn, his trumpet to rouse a deaf world. The big question is, will we listen? That's the first picture. The second picture is the witness of the church. Chapter 10, verse 1 through to 11, 14. And it starts with this picture of a, an imposing angel in chapter 10, verse 1, who is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, many of the descriptions of him are just like the, the picture of Jesus in chapter 1. And he holds a scroll, which is the word of God, the gospel message, and he tells John in verse 9, take it and eat it. He says, it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told... You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So John is told, here's the message. Take it. Proclaim it. It's going to, first of all, taste sweet, because the gospel is sweet. It's good news, remember? <laughs> We've got great news to share. And there's nothing better than passing on the message of salvation. But it's also going to be sour, he says. Because these are hard words, and part of the message is judgment. 
I have to say, I haven't been particularly excited uh, about having to speak about judgment. Nobody particularly wants to hear about judgment. But it's here, loud and clear in the Bible. Over half of Jesus' parables were about either judgment or heaven and hell. So if we just airbrush judgment out of the Bible story, we're we're leaving out a major part of Jesus' teaching. Not everyone will welcome the message of Jesus Christ. Not everyone, when they hear the trumpet warnings, will say, thanks for the warning, as we did when we heard our foghorn. Indeed, in the worst cases, some Christian messengers, witnesses, will be badly treated. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. Now, when they've finished their testimony, these are the the, uh, witnesses preaching, When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial, the ultimate insult. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. We've killed God's messengers. Well done us. That's what they said when Jesus was crucified. That's what they said in the Acts of the Apostles as the apostles were killed. That's what they said throughout the history of the church. We had Bob Fu here this morning. You may remember a Chinese pastor who came to our prayer meeting about a year ago talking about the persecuted church in China. Some wonderful stories coming out of that church. Um, One million before the Cultural Revolution, now about 100 million, estimated that by about 2030, there'll be 200 million, which suggests if if the statistics carry on like that, there'll soon be more Christians than people in China. But anyway, that, and he was saying, the great thing for pastors being sent to prison is that it's very fertile ground for sharing the gospel. I wonder if you've thought of that, that when you get sent to prison for being a Christian, you know, when these extremist um, laws get brought in and someone who proclaims the uniqueness of Christ is accused of being an extremist, and you go to prison for being a Christian, have you thought, what a fantastic opportunity to share Christ with your fellow prisoners? And this is, what, uh, this is part of the vision here, that these preachers, when they've been killed, their deaths will be celebrated. And yet, chapter 11, verse 11, the church rises again. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. God's word may be opposed, but it cannot be silenced. You may know the story of Voltaire, the the, uh, famous atheist, French philosopher of the 18th century. He predicted that within a hundred years of his life, the Bible would be simply a museum piece, nothing else. Rather wonderfully, a hundred years later, not only was Voltaire's house owned by the Bible Society, but but it also housed a printing press producing thousands of Bibles every year. I think it's a delightful little near-near to Voltaire. (laughs) 
God's witnesses are to take the gospel to a needy world. People won't always welcome it. Remember Roger said, you know, five invitations, you might get one acceptance. If you do better than that, wonderful. But don't be discouraged if people reject it. The great thing is that we go on inviting. Sometimes people will oppose us for it. But we need to hear the trumpet blast. We want our friends to hear the trumpet blast. God calling people to get right with him. And as we come to our events week, let's pray that we'll use this opportunity. That we will be so gripped by the truths of the gospel that we'll be having that trumpet call echoing in our ears, that we'll long for people to hear about the grace and indeed the justice of God. So that's the witness of the church and the word that cannot be silenced. Our third and final picture is the worship of heaven. If you look at chapter 11, verse 15, we come to the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. And I think these heavenly voices sang something a little bit like this. Okay, we'll play that at the end, but you've got the idea. And I love the way that Handel just repeats it forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, forever, forever, hallelujah, hallelujah, forever, forever. You've got the idea. And uh, th this is the worship of heaven. It's all there in verse 15. Jesus is on the throne of heaven, and he will reign forever and ever. Remember, life is tough. Come on, come with me. Life is tough, but the lamb wins. And do you see why these 24 elders in verse 16, that is that the whole church of God, 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New, why the whole church of God are praising Jesus. Verse 17, they say, We give, you th we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. They're praising Jesus because he's the reigning king. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, for destroying those who destroy the earth. They are praising God not just because he's reigning, but because he's judging. Now, for some people, judgment sounds like a very negative word. It brings to mind kind of Simon Cowell on a bad day at the X Factor. 
you know, the nasty judge who's really got it in for people, and I'm going to get you. No, that's not what uh, the Bible's understanding of the judgment of God is. Think more of some terrible crime that's been committed and a judge who is true and just and fair making the right call. Judgment is passed. And if you're the victim, you come out of the court and you say, justice has been done. The God, sorry, the judge who says, well, I know it's a pretty bad crime, but hey, can't you get over it? Just learn to forgive. You say, where's the justice in that? Someone said to me this morning, I prefer to think a bit more about mercy than judgment. You cannot separate the two. God is merciful because he has to judge. And he shows his mercy in taking the judgment on himself, on Jesus, in his death on the cross. God is a true, fair, and right judge. And that is really good news. He's the perfect judge. He's holy. He's awesome. Every time we say the creed, we say, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is good news. Our newspapers and our televisions will tell us that the world is in a mess. Our own experience will tell us that life is tough. Life is tough, but the Lamb wins. Jesus is on the throne of heaven, and he will reign forever and ever. And the promise of his impending return is a trumpet call warning us to repent and to get right with him. And if you're someone here tonight who's never repented, let me encourage you, hear the trumpet call tonight. And maybe you've been a Christian for some time. Repentance isn't something that happened years ago when you first came to faith. It's a daily process, putting our wrongs behind us, turning to follow Christ day by day. The promise of Jesus' return is also a motivation for us to tell our friends about him. And the promise of Jesus' return is a cause for great rejoicing. One day, every wrong will be put right. As we saw last week, no tears, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order of things one day will have passed. Life is tough, but the Lamb wins. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your kindness you send us warnings. Thank you for that foghorn, the trumpet calls, that as we see the mess of the world, we are to look to you and the final victory of the Lamb seated on the throne of heaven. Help us to rejoice in your final victory. Help us to rejoice that even though life is tough, the Lamb wins. And may we go from this place and live with a song in our hearts this week. For Jesus' sake. Amen.